It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Thank you for joining us for Everything Under the Sun, the AccuWeather podcast. I'm your host, meteorologist Regina Miller from the AccuWeather Network. Andy Robb is joining me in studio. He is our AccuWeather radio broadcaster and producer. And Ken Prell, our director of audio services here at AccuWeather. So, guys, we have some pretty interesting uh, topics coming up in the near future that are history-based and how they changed the face, really, of the globe. And this week, we are talking to Evan Myers, COO here at AccuWeather and History Buff, about Pearl Harbor. Always love when Evan's in studio. Always learn so much from him. He's a good storyteller, and it was December 7th of 1941 when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And something you may not know is that weather had a huge impact on how that battle went and ultimately the outcome of the war. So as we're here uh, on this week, which is the 77th anniversary of the devastating attacks on Pearl Harbor, we're going to take a look into it. It's really interesting. So up next, we have Evan Myers, and he's going to tell us about that. So stay with us. From AccuWeather's Global Headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's everything under the sun. Here's your host, Regina Miller. I'm joined in the studio once again by one of my favorite resident history buffs, uh, COO Evan Myers. And Evan, we are talking about Pearl Harbor and the attack there, which December 7th, 1941, and you said uh, it used to be on the calendar. Well, that's true. So I'm older than all the folks, uh, older than you. And Not much. All, all, our, all our backup <laughs> folks here uh, in our studio. So President Roosevelt, when he gave the speech the next day, um, called it a day of infamy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because that's kind of how December 7th became known, at least for a few decades. And I remember being a little kid and December 7th, on the calendar in the little box for December 7th that said mm-hmm. Day of Infamy. Right. So uh, it, it's it's kind of interesting. So it's, uh, and as you said, I'm interested in history and mm-hmm. use my weather expertise and blend them together. And the weather always comes into play, not always, but most of the time comes into play with a lot of significant history events. Mm-hmm. And so it does. With the attack on Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. And, you know, before we get started talking about the weather and its impact the day of the attack, can you talk to me a little bit about, like, set the stage of what the political tensions were that were building between the countries prior to this? Well, sure. So the Japanese had the Imperial Japanese Empire had been expanding. Uh, during the mid and late 30s, at first seizing control of the Korean, whole Korean peninsula, uh, Manchuria, which they renamed Manchuko, and then invaded China. Uh, and the United States, in response to this in the late 30s, uh, 38, 39, uh, and then into 40, had uh, put a embargo on a lot of raw materials, metals, steel, and uh, during the latter, maybe later 1939, 1940, started to embargo oil. 
and uh, this significantly impacted Japan. Japan itself didn't have very many natural resources. That's one of the reasons why they were waging these wars of conquest to seize all these natural materials that existed in northern China and Korea and so on. They really couldn't continue to function in the expansionist way they wanted to with this big embargo that the United States had put into effect. So there were rising tensions occurred uh, for several years leading up to this. And as a matter of fact, what was going on, there was high-level negotiations taking place between the Japanese government and the U.S. government uh, to try to work out some of these details. The Japanese were looking for some relief. The United States wouldn't give relief unless the Japanese withdrew from uh, these lands in in China and Korea, and the Japanese empire was not about to do that. They were very uh, militaristic, they were fascist, they were aligned with Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy. They weren't gonna do that. So actually the Japanese had no feeling to go back on what they were doing, and the United States continued to negotiate in good faith, all the while that Japan was preparing for war. They were preparing for an attack on the United States because they felt that the only way that they couldn't break the embargo was to defeat the United States very quickly, actually have the United States sue for peace and basically take over most of its uh, possessions in the Pacific, have the United States then acquiesce and start supplying uh. it again and, and, and to kind of stay out of their backyard. So, so as these, you know, because I wasn't familiar with this, but so as these high-level negotiations were going on at the very same time, Japan... Probably didn't have any intention of really... They did not. In fact, the Japanese fleet sailed from Japan in the latter stages of November while Mm -hmm. this was all going on as they made their way to attack Pearl Harbor in the United States. And they coordinated a series of attacks uh, almost within 24 hours in the Philippines. They attacked the British holdings uh, in the Malay Peninsula, Singapore, places like that, all at the same time, within within a day or two. Uh, They did all this at once. So they had this long, uh, planned out, coordinated attack on the United States and and British possessions. Most of it was uh, overseen by Admiral Yamoto, who actually had spent some time in the United States prior to that time, uh, went to school in the United States uh, and and was very familiar with the United States and actually opposed the attack. uh, But then when it was decided to do it, uh, then he was given the task to oversee it. Was he the one who said, I fear that we may have... What's that famous quote? Yes, he said, I'm afraid all we have done is awaken a a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible resolve. That's right. And that's that's based on his experience of, uh, you know, of of the United States. Right. Well, let's talk about the morning of the attack, December 7th, 1941. And what was happening weather-wise and what was happening with the Japanese forces. Well, it's interesting because you really need to go back from a weather standpoint probably 10 days or so before that to set the scene for from a weather standpoint from the attack. The Japanese uh, had planned on taking a northern route for two reasons. One, the United States didn't expect the fleet to do that. And number two, it was particularly stormy there, so that would be another reason why they would have the element of surprise. They sailed far north, uh, just south of the Aleutian Islands in in, uh, Alaska, and then came in down from the north. And we weren't looking for them up there for two reasons. We didn't think they would take that that route. And we also didn't think they would do it, not just because of 
the trajectory, but because it was extremely stormy. There was a series of storms, and the seas were very, very rough from Hawaii on northward. And so we weren't looking for them. In fact, we lost the, the Japanese fleet. We knew that we couldn't, we couldn't find them. We didn't know where they were, uh, but we didn't expect that they were there. Now, obviously, with modern technology today, we'd have satellite photos and we'd be able to see where they were. Right. Uh, but in those days, uh, that, that didn't happen. And so we were not looking for them anywhere in that area where they were coming from. And they actually had to send uh, tanker ships along with the fleet and have tankers meet them to continually refuel the fleet because... They were going uh, so far out of their way. Well, they way. were going out of their way, and also when it's stormy, or the headway is a lot slower, so uh, you're using a lot of more a lot more fuel. So uh, we, were, we were not looking for them. So they were risking probably their own fleet just in the weather there was concern, to get there. There was concern about okay. that happening, yes. Right, but it was worth doing. it to well, them. For, well, up to that point, yes, it was. We'll take a quick break in our conversation with Evan to let you know about some previous podcasts that we've done that are focused on history and weather's impact on it. And of course, those also feature our resident history buff, COO Evan Myers. Uh, Definitely check out episode eight about the great Galveston hurricane that destroyed Galveston, Texas in 1900. Also, the Chicago fire, episode number 20. Uh, We get into the cause of the fire and also uh, the trail of destruction it left behind in Chicago. Right. And actually, weather had a big impact on that Chicago fire. And also, if you have an idea on a history-related forecast where weather had an impact, you can feel free to email us. That's right. AccuWeather.podcast at AccuWeather.com. And, of course, uh, check out AccuWeather.com slash podcast for all our shows. So back to our conversation now with COO Evan Myers. We're talking about Pearl Harbor. And, Evan, let's talk about the morning of the attack when the Japanese came in. So that morning, uh, as, as I said, it was somewhat stormy north of Hawaii. But it, Hawaii that morning, uh, the weather was fairly calm. There were only a few puffy clouds over some of the, uh, over some of the mountains. It was, it was a clear Sunday morning. And their plan, was the, which they executed, was to fly very low out of the detection of a newfangled device that uh, the British had actually developed with the United States, radar. Right. The problem is we didn't really believe in radar. We didn't rely on radar. The British did, and that's what helped them win the Battle of Britain. Our, our, our naval officers especially were very skeptical mm-hmm. of, of this newfangled device. We had a radar station on a high point uh, in Hawaii, north of Pearl Harbor, uh, that was on, in effect, folks were working on that about a, an hour or two a day, first thing in the morning, and then they shut it down. Weren't so taking it all that seriously. They weren't. And it's interesting because uh, one of the last, just before they turned, the, they shut it down, they saw a large mass of something uh, coming in from the north. And because they couldn't believe that it was the Japanese, and there was also at the same time a grouping of uh, B-17s coming in from the west coast of the United States, they assumed that what they were looking at were the, this this grouping of a small grouping, I think, of a dozen B-17s flying in from uh, I think uh, San Diego. The problem is the radar operator saw several groupings of planes, and it couldn't. It was too big to be the B-17s, but. The folks that they were reporting to said, nah, that's what it is. We can't, it's nothing else, and told them to turn off the radar. So they actually knew. Had uh, they trusted Half an hour, an hour beforehand. Wow. That here are these planes coming in, but um, they didn't trust the radar. Yeah, I was going to say, because they hadn't really 
because they hadn't taken it seriously the whole way along, they probably just thought, oh, it's an anomaly because we're still figuring this well, thing they out. Thought, well, that's right. And, yeah. and as again, it's, a new, it's, new technology, it's new technology, so you know, we don't, yeah. we're not interested in this new technology. We, uh, we know how to do stuff. But they didn't even put people on alert. They didn't, do any, they didn't send up a plane to go, well, go check that out. Didn't mm -hmm. do any of that stuff. Right. So uh, the aviators didn't do it. It's interesting because a Japanese mini-sub was spotted in Pearl Harbor several uh, about an hour before the attack, and the Navy commander said to go check it out, but not. But they didn't. They didn't check the anything out. Aviation the didn't go check out the the radar. Oh wow! So as they came in that morning, they had just a few patchy clouds around over some of the higher mountains, and that was. So they were able it. to have a clear a, a clear sight line right to Pearl Harbor. Uh, they were operating off of you know maps that they had and so on, but they were they needed to see the ground. I mean, it's not like today with all the uh, instrumentation right. that, that aer airplanes have and, and aviation have. So you had to really look at the terrain. So they were able to easily see what was going on. Uh, they didn't have to fly under it. They didn't have to fly over it. They were able to see what was going on. So they were able to have that clear path right into Pearl Harbor. Now, um, I'm curious as to whether or not the Japanese would have known, because they were coming out of a storm. They didn't have the uh, technology we have today. If they knew when they were coming out from the north that it was going to be clear, did they, did they know ahead of time? Climatologically, what's average, what's normal for the weather in the Hawaiian Islands at that time is if there was no storm would be what occurred that morning. And I think they were relying on that. Uh, they, they also had a few folks that reported on from Hawaii on what was going on. So that the weather, but not that day, not that morning. But the fact is that it, based on historical records, uh, it, that's the that's a typical kind of morning they would have had there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting though because uh, the storminess that actually uh, acted as a cover for the Japanese fleet were one of the keys to eventual victory for the for the United States for the Allies, and that is that uh, there were no aircraft carriers in uh, in Pearl Harbor when the attack occurred, only battleships, and as we know. The way that the war in the Pacific was ultimately won was through aircraft, not through the old battleships. I mean, there were several huge battles that involved um, battleships, but also the planes that were associated with the aircraft carriers in those groups. The biggest ones, the Battle of the Carl Sea, for example, that was a combination. But aircraft won the day. And uh, one of the aircraft carriers, the, the USS Enterprise, which the Japanese during the early part of the war thought they sunk several times but didn't, wasn't, <laughs> right. wasn't there. Right. It, was, it was riding out. Uh, it was coming in from a different direction, and it, was, it decided to ride out the storm, which is typical, that it was coming through. Because it wasn't storming at Pearl Harbor, but on its way, it decided to, to take more time and ride out the storm at sea. So it was not there because of the same storminess that gave the Japanese cover. It actually protected th that uh, aircraft carrier. And ultimately, the tide of, uh, of battle uh, in the Pacific was turned uh, less, really about a year or less than a year later at the Battle of Midway. And that was turned by United States aircraft. And it was only able to do that because we had our aircraft carriers intact and the Japanese did not sink our aircraft carriers. That were their main targets. Mm -hmm. At Pearl Harbor was our aircraft carriers, and, and they, they didn't get any of them. And they weren't there. Wow! They so weren't there, and so right away, uh, a lot of the folks like Admiral Yamoto and others 
realized that they created a significant problem for themselves, that obviously they had wounded the United States, but unless they found those aircraft carriers, they were in trouble. And it's interesting because at the start of the war, the, the Japanese and the United States had about the same number of aircraft carriers in the Pacific, about it was five or six. Mm -hmm. By the end of the war, all the Japanese aircraft carriers were sunk. They only built another five or eight. The United States had, from various size aircraft carriers, mm -hmm. had over 200. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the they were completely the overwhelmed with those. Yes, so they were. It's interesting, uh, they, the old expression, win the battle and lose the war, for them, the very same uh, weather elements that helped them to win the battle helped them lose the that, war. That's right. That's right. exactly right. Right. Well, very interesting. Thanks so much for uh, talking to us about it today. Absolutely. The weather, once again, comes to play in history. I know. Great, great stuff. Always a pleasure talking to Evan Myers. And we've been doing a couple of these historic episodes. And you'll want to tune in in two weeks. We're doing another episode, and it is with Elliot Abrams. And that one is about the Revolutionary War and how it turned because of weather. Specifically, Washington's capture of Princeton and Trenton. Right. So pretty uh, interesting episodes coming up there. And next week, we are going to be talking about holiday travel, because I'm sure that's on everyone's minds. Uh, one of my favorite movies, Plain trains and automobiles <laughs> great movie. Yeah. great, great yeah. movie if you haven't seen that you have to watch it because they're hitting the roads they're hitting the airlines and it is hysterical but anyway uh next week we will be talking to tamara johnson and she is from trip away travel and they are releasing their holiday travel forecast when's a good time to hit the roadways what airlines and where do people run into problems so we have that coming up next week so be sure to tune in Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to AccuWeather's Everything Under the Sun, giving you the stories behind the weather and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or visit AccuWeather.com slash podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.